Take your copy of God's Word and find 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Tonight we're going to look at three chapters in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 12, 13, and 14, as we think about this subject, charismania, charisphobia, and charismatic. Now, perhaps many of you who are younger uh, don't see the significance of this, this matter, but those of us who are a bit older uh, know that uh, the subject of the gifts of the Spirit have been controversial uh, in church life uh, over the last several decades, and uh, even in Southern Baptist church life as well. So charismania, charisphobia, charismatic. <clears throat> the three words in the title have in common that word charis, which is a Greek word which literally means grace. And so uh, it is a reference to the gifts of the Spirit, which are gifts of God's grace to his redeemed people. Every true Christian is a charismatic. You may not prefer that label for yourself, but biblically, if you are a Christian, if the Spirit of God dwells within you, then you have gifts of the Spirit, as we'll see tonight as we make our way through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That means that you are charismatic. Now, I'm not using the word as it's properly used of maybe a, a, some celebrity or some political figure who is very charismatic in personality, but we're using the word tonight uh, as the Bible uses it. So let's think first a bit about charismania. Charismania is the term that I use to describe those people who are pushing the gifts of the Holy Spirit on other people. It usually is expressed like this. I have the gift of tongues, and you ought to have the gift of tongues. And if you don't have the gift of tongues, then you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or sometimes it works like this. I have the gift of healing, but if you don't have the gift of healing, then you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. Fact of the matter is, every Christian has the Holy Spirit has been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. It's one thing to be baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. It's another thing altogether to be filled with the Spirit. Now we are commanded in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. That's a clear command of God. So we read in the book of Acts that those early followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, after they were experienced the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when the God poured out the Spirit on his church, then they were repeatedly being filled with the Spirit. So it's possible to have the Spirit and not be walking in the victory of God, which comes with being filled with the Spirit. 
Therefore, we ought to, be, at the outset of every day, ask the Holy Spirit to fill us because in and of ourselves we are weak and helpless. And as Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if our life is not supernatural, and by supernatural I mean if we're not walking in the fullness of the Spirit of God, then our life is very superficial. Now, if you've been around Lakeview any length of time, you've heard me preach on this a good bit. It's such an important doctrine to be filled with the Spirit. I was converted. I was born again as a 10-year-old lad. But it was only after I came away to Auburn that I was introduced to the person and work of the Holy Spirit and began to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit as a freshman here at Auburn University. So, after I was filled with the Spirit, my life was transformed. There were others who would try to get me to speak in tongues. In fact, I had a, a friend from, from back home who also was a fellow classmate with me in college, and he went off to a meeting somewhere and began to speak in tongues, and he, he was adamant that I was to speak in tongues like he was speaking in tongues. He was just... He had gone to seed on that. Fact of the matter is, uh, he could speak in tongues. I heard him speak in tongues for sure, but he had trouble telling the truth. He had a bigger issue that he never dealt with. And uh, so there are people who will try to get you to speak in tongues. I had happened in recent decades. I'm not sure why, but the first few years I was here, people were trying to get me to speak in tongues. which I have not done. Now, I suppose one of the most extreme examples of a person who would be guilty of charismania was back in the days of the PTO club. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And uh, Tammy Baker was all excited. Well, she was excited on every program. And uh, she was talking about her dog got the baptism of the Holy Ghost and was barking with a new bark. Now, friends, if that's not blasphemy, it borders on blasphemy. That the blessed third person of the Trinity would come upon an animal. We do read in the, in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus cast some demons into some pigs, but nothing about the Holy Spirit in an animal. So that's just a, just a quick brief overview of those that I would say are expressive of what I would call charismania. On the other extreme are those that I would describe as experiencing charisphobia. Those who think in this terms fear some of the spiritual gifts. They typically don't fear all the spiritual gifts, but they particularly uh, are afraid of the gift of tongues. And they say that uh, the gift of tongues ceased with the end of the apostolic age. Now, I hope to show you tonight that that's a difficult position to justify exegetically. These people are sincere. Some of them are my friends. But I sincerely believe they have misinterpreted God's word. And so when we think of charismania, 
on one hand or charisphobia on the other hand. Basically, we're talking about one particular gift of the Spirit, the gift of tongues. Now, we read in Acts chapter 2 that when the Spirit came on the church, they all spoke in, in, in tongues and the people understood them. I believe the tongues in Acts chapter 2 was known language. But I also believe, based on my understanding of Scripture, that exegetically the tongues found in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 were ecstatic language or glossolalia or what some would call a prayer language. Now, that's not a biblical term, prayer language, but there are some that use that. And uh, to set the record straight, there are people in this church and have been for decades who say to me, I have the prayer language. I'm looking around the room. I see a number of you in the room tonight who say to me, this is a gift of the Spirit that God has given to me. Having said that, it is no guarantee that because you can speak in tongues that you are filled with the Spirit. It's not even a guarantee that you're saved. Now, the ones that I know at Lakeview that say that to me are saved. They're some of our best members, some of our most generous givers. Uh, they're, they're prayer warriors. They share the gospel. They go on mission trips. But just because a person can speak in tongues doesn't mean that he or she is walking in holiness and in humility with the Lord. Are you aware that there are advocates of the, the Muslim religion that speak in tongues? There are Muslims that speak in tongues. There are Hindus that speak in tongues. So how can they do that? Well, it's just counterfeit. Everything that God does... Satan tries to counterfeit. He's got a counterfeit church. He's got a counterfeit gospel. He's got counterfeit gifts of the Spirit. The only thing that Satan cannot counterfeit is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, if it's counterfeit, then it counterfeits false. Well, sure it is. Muslim tongue speaking is false, and Hindu tongue speaking is false, and much that goes under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ is false. But because something is counterfeit doesn't mean it's all false. If you were going to counterfeit money, you wouldn't counterfeit $3 bills. You'd counterfeit a $20 or a $50 or a $100 bill. The fact that there's counterfeit is, is simply a reflection. There must be something authentic out there, as the Bible teaches that there is. It is my considered belief that there are three kinds of tongues. There is the psychological, which maybe you get in some, some religious frenzy and you get your emotions all worked up and you begin to babble. That's not real. Then on the other hand, there is the satanic, which Satan counterfeits. Demons uh, enable you to speak in tongues, obviously. That's not real. And then there's the authentic. And what we find in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, uh, 13, and 14 is the authentic. So I want to give you 13 uh, principles from these three chapters. We're going to go through this quickly. I'm going to give it an, uh, um, a bird's eye view if you want to know more. The first year I was pastor of this church on Sunday night, I, I preached on, on the gifts of the Spirit. I took each one of the gifts of the Spirit. I preached 20 sermons. I had a, had a sermon on each gift. 
and uh, you can have a copy of the manuscripts of that if you'll just come by my church office. My secretary will get that for you. I don't think it's online. Our recording abilities were uh, not what they are today, way back 40 plus years ago. So let's plunge in. Number one, we need to be informed about spiritual gifts. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to be informed about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. I was a student at Southwestern Seminary before I ever knew anything about the gifts of the Spirit. And I learned in the class with Dr. Jack Gray, which is not so, un so remarkable, except I had been a pastor for 20 months here in Alabama before I moved to Texas to go to seminary. I knew nothing about the gifts. Of the it's not that I hadn't read 1 Corinthians. I read it, but I perhaps just read over it. So Paul makes it quite clear when he writes to the, to the brothers in Corinth about spiritual gifts, we do not want you to be ignorant. Among other things, that means not only do we know about them generally, but have we discern the spiritual gifts that God has given to each one of us? And are we exercising those gifts in ministry? Now, let me give you a brief definition of a spiritual gift. A, spirit, a spiritual gift is a spirit-given ability for Christian service. It is a spirit-given. It is given of the Holy Spirit of God, supernatural ability for Christian service. Number two, spiritual gifts are different and varied. We see this in chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. There we read, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit, different kinds of service, but the same Lord, different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. So, there's diversity among the gifts of the Spirit. And so, whatever the diversity given to you is determines the, the nature of your ministry in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I said to you, I preached 20 sermons on the gifts of the Spirit. Actually, I had two introductory sermons and a concluding sermon. So I had 17, 17 sermons on the gifts of the Spirit. I, com I combined tongues and interpretation uh, when I preached on that one. But here's this wide diversity of supernatural spirit-given abilities to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, every believer has one or more spiritual gifts. Verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Okay. Each one, no exceptions. Now it is my personal belief that not only does every true child of God have a spiritual gift, but I believe every true child of God has multiple spiritual gifts. 
I believe that the gifts of the Spirit that God imparted to me are prophecy and leadership and giving. You might call that a spiritual gift mix. And if you think about the 18 or 19 or 20 gifts of the Spirit that are found in the New Testament, some here in 1 Corinthians 12, others in Romans chapter 12, others in Ephesians chapter 4, and you think about the, the extraordinary large number of, of, of possibilities as you combine those gifts for, for service in the body of Christ. But if you are a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. Look at it one more time. Verse 7, out of each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Each one. No exceptions. Number four, spiritual gifts are given for the good of the church. Again, verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Now watch this last phrase here in verse 7. For the common good. For the, the, the building up and the edification of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not your little personal spiritual plaything for your own benefit. It will benefit you if you exercise the gift of the Spirit that God has given to you. But these spiritual gifts are given for the good of Jesus Christ church. Number five, the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives spiritual gifts. He chooses and he assigns. We see this in verses eight through 11. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. All right, there is a gift right there, wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. There's a second gift, knowledge. To another, faith. That's a third gift by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing. That's plural, not singular. That's number four by the one Spirit. Verse 10, to another, miraculous powers. That's five. To another, prophecy. That's six. To another, distinguishing between spirits. That's seven. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. That's eight. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. So in this list, in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, we have nine different gifts of the Spirit listed for us. But look on in verse 11 now. And there we see, and all of these, that is all of these gifts that are listed in those three previous verses are the work of one and the same Spirit. Now this last phrase I want you to see here, and He, that is the Spirit of God, gives them to each one just as He determines. He's sovereign in this, as he is sovereign in everything. So it's not, our, it's not our prerogative to go to the Lord and say, I want this gift and this gift, but please don't give me that one. No, we just go with open hands and say, Lord, I want whatever you have for me, and I want everything you have for me, whatever it may be. No reservations. Don't hold anything back. Number six, every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, I've already made reference to that earlier, but let's look at it in verses 12 and 13. Every believer has been baptized by 
the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, the body or the church is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and it is, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for we were all, underline that word all in your thinking, we were all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So if somebody says to you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're a Christian, you just say yes, because you have been. If you haven't been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, you're not a Christian. It is, it is the work of God to immerse us into his church. It is supernatural. There's one spirit baptism that happens at the moment of our conversion. There are many subsequent infillings that ought to happen every single day until Jesus comes back. They are not the same. Number seven, every member of the body of Christ is valuable and necessary. Now, this is uh, verses 14 through 27. It's like it's just a little bit to work through this. But uh, let me just say that if you are a member of the body of Christ, you're very valuable. Valuable to the Lord, valuable to the church. And, and you may say, well, uh, I, I'm not valuable. I mean, what can I do? I can't stand up and open the scriptures like my pastor does. Well, perhaps not. But we all have a, a, a role to play. And uh, whether it is visible, like the pastor preaching on a Sunday service, or behind the scenes, it's all seen by God, and therefore it's all valuable. There are no insignificant members of the body of Christ. So let's just work through verses 14 through 27. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And here, he, in verse 15, he starts to use uh, an example of a human body to point this out. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason uh, cease to be a part of the body. I mean, can you imagine a foot that has personality and compares itself to the hand and says, I'm not very important. I mean, how often does somebody compliment your, your, your feet? Well, not very often, right? Usually they're covered up with your shoes and your socks. But it's not uncommon for somebody to compliment somebody on their, on their hands. When our kids were small and lived at home, we had a Sunday off, and so the five of us in the Jackson household, we, uh, we drove over to Plains, Georgia, to hear former President Jimmy Carter teach Sunday school. Pretty good Sunday school teacher. And when the Sunday school class was over, we filed into the worship center, and uh, we tried to sit on the same pew with President and Mrs. Carter, Secret Service would not allow us to do that, told us we had to move. So we sat in front of them. They were on like the third pew and we sat on the second pew in front of them. 
and Kim reaches across to try to get our corral our kids to behave and her hands are out like this and Carter leans over and says you have lovely hands ma'am I mean politicians are always on aren't they even in big church <laughs> but you you get the point people people don't compliment you for your 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 feet they compliment you for your hands Look again in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, can you imagine a six foot, 200 pound eyeball? If the whole body were an eye, gross, isn't it? It would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were in, uh, excuse me, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? We, we smell with our nose, we hear with our ears, we see with our eyes. And every part of the human body has a different role to play. The same thing is true in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, every part of the body is necessary and valuable. Now look in verse 18. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, which goes back to the fifth principle I told you that the Holy Spirit sovereignly assigns the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given, the, uh, and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked, lacked it so that there should be no division in the body. But its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So you, you can't say to God, I, you know, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I, I'm, I'm not an eye, I'm just a toe. Nobody cares about toes. That's not being humble, that's being ungrateful. And if you're an eye, you, can't, you shouldn't say, well, you know, I'm better than, I'm better than the toe. My role in the body is much, much more valuable than, than the toe. So that's arrogance. Both are wrong. One is false humility and the other is clearly pride. Verse 26 is such a wonderful verse. It, is, it talks to us about the importance of the body of Christ. If one part suffers, every part suffers. Hit your thumb with a, with a, with a, a hammer and you'll feel your heartbeat for the next several days. The whole body suffers along with it. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when, it, when, it's, when it's function as it ought to function, when somebody in the body of Christ is suffering, we all suffer with it. We see this in times of sorrow and death in this, in this fellowship. And when one part is honored, we all rejoice. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you a part of it. That is true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every member of the body of Christ is valuable.
and necessary. Number eight, no unbeliever has every spiritual gift, nor is one particular gift given to every believer. This is where the, the, the where it meets the road right here. This is where some of the conflict comes in. Because there are some people who, who say, you've got to have this particular gift. It's usually the gift of tongues. Not always, but typically that is the gift of tongues. But no unbeliever has every spiritual gift. And nor is one particular gift given to every believer. Because if one believer had every spiritual gift, then he or she would be a one-person church. And you wouldn't need other members of the body of Christ. And that's just not, that's not how God has designed his church. So look in verse 28 through 31. Series of, uh, first a statement and then a series of questions. Verse 28, in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles. That is a spiritual gift. Second, prophets. That's a spiritual gift. Third, teachers. That's a gift of the spirit. Then, workers of miracles and also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others and those with gifts of administration and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. So here is a a second list of gifts of the Spirit. There's some overlap between what we saw in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10 in here, but there's some new gifts introduced to us. As I said earlier, there's another list found in Romans uh, 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4. So these are some of the gifts of the Spirit that are given. Then in verse 28, excuse me, in verse 29 and 30, he asked, this, he asked these questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now when you read that, what do you think the answer to that is? It sounds like in every case he's saying, no. All are not apostles, all are not prophets, all don't teach, all don't work miracles. Some do, but not all. What it appears to be the case in our English translation is absolutely the case in the Greek New Testament. Because with every one of these questions, there is the, there is the negative particle, uh, may epsilon, and it always, without exception, always demands a no answer. So if someone says to you, for instance, well, you must speak in tongues to give evidence that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You can just point them right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, excuse me, verse 29, where Paul says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer has to be no. Then verse 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. You say, what about that? You just said we shouldn't desire gifts. God determines that. He does. This is in the context of the church. Desire that God will give to a particular local church, not a particular believer, but to a particular local church, the gifts that that, that that church needs to carry out its mission. It's plural, not singular. Number nine, it is better to be godly, that is to be loving than gifted. This is all taught in chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a very uh, 
famous chapter in the Bible. It's the love chapter. And uh, portions of this chapter are read at almost every funeral that I ever go to. We, we think of this as the romantic chapter. That's not its primary intention. This chapter, chapter 13, is set in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14 because chapter 13 gives us instruction about how to use the gifts of the Spirit. And we're to do so in the context of love one for another. So let's look in this chapter. And now I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels. Okay, here's tongues. Here's spiritually get the tongues, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Speak in tongues till the cows come home at night. But if you don't love, you're just a, a, a resounding gong, just making noise. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, there's another gift of the Spirit. So much so that I can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And if I have faith, there's another gift we saw earlier, here it is. Have faith that can move mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames that have not love, I gain nothing. So there's the gift of giving. We, we don't see it in the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, but we see the gift of giving in Romans chapter 12 passage. So in these first three verses, we see the gift of tongues in verse 1. We see the gift of prophecy in verse 2. We see the gift of faith in verse 2. We see the gift of giving in verse 3. But if we exercise these gifts without love, it is all vain. There's no, there's no eternal uh, value to it. Now, here's the best definition of love you'll find anywhere right here in verses 4, 5, and 6. In the first part of verse 7, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Hard to beat that for a definition of love. That's a high standard right there. And no one of us can measure up to that apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Okay, there's the gift of prophecies. Where there are tongues, they will be still. There's the gift of tongues. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. That's one of the gifts of the Spirit we saw in uh, chapter 12. So the day is coming, Paul says, when prophecy will cease and tongues will cease and knowledge will pass away. Verse 9, but we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, cessationists would say the Bible is perfect. And with the close of the apostolic age... And with the completion of the canon of Holy Scripture, all 66 books of our, our, our Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, 
And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. When the perfect comes, then uh, all this is going to pass away. Verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. To me, it's as clear as the noonday sun that this is not, he's not talking about the completion of the canon of Scripture. He's talking about the end of the age when, when uh, the clouds split and King Jesus comes in splendor and glory and we see him face to face. On that day, that's when the perfection comes. Because if you take the cessationist view that it's the completion of the canons, that all of you people at Lady who speak in tongues, you're, you're dishonoring God. And you need to repent. And you're some of the most godly people I know. It is hard to justify and reconcile a cessationist position with people who walk in close fellowship with God, who are wonderful churchmen and churchwomen who say, this is a gift of the Spirit that God has given to me. If you say all of this has ceased when the apostolic age was over. That's my view. You may disagree with that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay as close to the Scripture as I can and, and not to let some theological system impose on my exegesis of the text of scripture. So it is better to be godly and loving than to be gifted. So if you speak in tongues and you've got a bad attitude, you need to repent. If you have the gift of whatever your gift is, and you're walking in carnality and disobedience to God, your gift does not cover up your carnality and your gift of God. All right, four more to go. Chapter 14. Number 10, prophecy is more valuable than tongues. We see this in chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 5. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. If anyone speaks in a tongue, he does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one who understands him, no one understands him, he utters mystery with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. See the difference there? Therefore, if you edify yourself, that's valuable. But if you edify the church, that's more valuable. Verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. But I'd rather you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. So two gifts. On the one hand, prophecy. On the other hand, tongues. Paul makes it quite clear that prophecy is a more valuable gift than his tongues. Number 11, in a public assembly of believers, a meeting, a message in tongues is to be interpreted to all who are, 
present. So a corporate worship service like we're in tonight, if someone has a message in tongues, it is to be interpreted so all of us can receive it because if you speak in this ecstatic utterance and nobody understands what you're saying, it does us no good. Paul addresses this in verse 6 through 19. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what, will it, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not get a sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, all, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker. And he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Which in Paul's view here is prophecy more than tongues. Verse 13, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit. I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you are saying? And you may well be giving thanks enough, but the other man is not edified. There's no interpretation. You just happen yourself, but not others. Now, verse 18, I, would, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Skip down to verse 22. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some do not understand or some believers come in, will they not say you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God really is among you. Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, watch this, two or at most three should speak. Paul puts a cap on it in a public worship service. Three. They should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So if there's going to be a message given in, in, a, in a worship service in tongues, it is incumbent upon the person who gives the message either to interpret the message or somebody in the service to interpret it for him. Number 12, we are not to forbid speaking in tongues, verse 39. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. 
It's a serious thing to forbid something that God has commended. It is to be expressed according to the scriptural guidelines set forth here in chapter 14, but not to be forbidden. 13. The public assembly of believers is to be orderly, not chaotic. Look in verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And when I was a student in college, I went to every revival meeting I could work in. I probably would have made better grades, but I was going night after night, different revival meetings, churches, tents, and just seeking the Lord. These eyes and these ears have seen and heard some strange things in some of those settings. It wasn't decently and in order. Now, God is not a God of chaos. Not at all. He's the God of cosmos. He's the creator. And everything has its place, just like in the in the solar system and in the seasons, in the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. And uh, chaos in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not honor the Lord either. We don't need to fear God, nor do we need to fear the Spirit of the Lord, nor do we need to fear the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we need to come humbly before our God and say, God, have your own way in my life. Do with me whatever you please or choose to do. I want everything that you have for me. And you've heard me say before, I'll say it again tonight. I know exactly how much every one of you have of the presence and power of the Lord in your life. You say how much, as much as you want. You have as much of God in your life as you want. Let's let God do for us anything and everything he wants to do. And never settle for just nominal, subnormal, cultural Christianity, which affects most of our churches across the land. Father in heaven, I pray that your spirit will give to each of us tonight a, a fresh hunger to experience the fullness of the spirit of God and to pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would seek hard after you. And I pray, spirit of God, uh, that... Uh, we would seek to discern what spiritual gifts you've given to each one of us that we might deploy those in service for Christ in and through his church. May it all be for his glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.